Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. Reporting for ConnectingVets.com, I'm Navy vet Phil Briggs. Today we're going to hear about a Marine Corps warrior's journey from the battlefield to becoming a business owner and the unique role the VA played in making his medical technology business possible. Specifically, we'll learn about the Habit Camera, launched by Marine Corps Raider Derek Herrera. It's a low-cost digital tool for skin inspection, and Derek learned about the importance of skin inspection after he was shot and subsequently paralyzed on the battlefield of Afghanistan. He faced challenges associated with wound care and learned how hard it was to inspect his own skin with just a mirror. But seven years after his life-changing injury, he established Paratroop LLC as a certified service-disabled veteran-owned small business, and he licensed this property from the Minneapolis Adaptive Design and Engineering, which is part of the Minneapolis VA. And thus, the Habit Camera has come to market. So here to unpack the whole story and his journey, let's say hello to Marine Corps Raider Derek Herrera. Derek, how you doing, man? Great. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, brother. It is a so good to have you. And uh, also we'll hear throughout this hour from Dr. John Kaplan, Director of Department of Veteran Affairs Technology Transfer Program, which is making licensing technology from VA research possible for entrepreneurs like you, Derek. Dr. John Kaplan, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Good to have you. And uh, I can't wait to actually ask you some more questions about how business entrepreneurs can learn about things they can license, like technology that's already been researched, ready to take to market. But before we jump into that, before we even jump into the Habit camera itself, hit the rewind button a little bit and uh, talk to me, Derek. Marine Corps Raiders. You know, I told our host earlier that uh, you're like a unicorn because I was in the Navy and worked in and around Marines. I never met a Raider. I considered you guys so rare in the special operations community. But uh, tell me a little bit about uh, your experience as a Marine and take me up to Afghanistan. Yeah, the Marine Raider community is very small. It's formed originally in 2006 uh, through the unit, which was called MARSOC, which is the Marine Special Operations Command. And so up until that time, uh, Marines had very specialized units, but they didn't have anybody specifically assigned to SOCOM or the Special Operations Command, which changed in 2006. The backbone of the unit is built off of the legacy of reconnaissance and force reconnaissance Marines. And so first and second force reconnaissance companies became first and second Marine Special Operations Battalions, and continue to build and grow the unit 
from that time uh, up until the time when I was, you know, a part of it. And then even after that, we still didn't have a name up until by 2014 or 15 due to the the reality that the Marine Corps has a very special and unique culture where everybody is special and no one is special at the same time. So uh like, you know, there's, there's a very consistent theme that, you know, you have one title and it's Marine. You don't have anything else. You don't, you know, you don't get special badges. You don't get special things, but, but it was actually pretty confusing for the people at SOCOM. So actually Alvin McRaven, when he was the commander of SOCOM, uh, helped to push it through and, and the name Raiders actually came from the special operations units in World War II, the Marine Raiders from World War II, which were highly specialized units. They were some of the first special operations units, uh, and were tasked with conducting operations behind any lines in advance of amphibious landings throughout the Pacific and were very, very storied and historic fabled unit. Essentially, Marine Raiders are similar to other special operations forces like Navy SEALs or Army Green Berets. So I joined uh, initially as an infantry officer in 2007 after I got through training and then deployed twice and then decided to continue to further, you know, my myself in the profession and went to the selection process and through the training to become a Marine Raider and then found myself as a team commander of about 20, you know, special operators, Marines and sailors. And in 2012, we deployed to Afghanistan. We were tasked with conducting what was called village stability operations. And so basically, similar to what was done in Vietnam and other previous conflicts, we would operate as a team in a small or rural outpost, uh, working to try to turn the tide of battle and, and, you know, create sustainable outcomes there. And it sounds like you work maybe a similar role in that capacity as SF. You know, we always hear about the Green Berets that work by, with, and through a local indigenous culture. But it's essentially, yeah, if you're trying to win hearts and minds from just village residents and there is a force out there that is their ever-present reality, that is Al-Qaeda, the Taliban, whomever, you got to work with the people because not all the locals like those guys. Not all the locals are those people. Not everyone is the enemy. But to sift through, to sort through, you need to win trust. You need to work alongside, you know, our Afghan allies. And um through that, there's a lot of... A lot of tough stuff because you get involved in situations where, you know, you don't know who's who and you don't know where loyalties lie. And that can be a real sticky wicket. Um, I've been honored to talk to MARSOC Raiders before, but special operations team members and, you know, the operators, as they're called. But even back to Vietnam, where the force recon vets, which is interesting that the lineage sort of transfers from Marine Force Recon Vietnam, a very elite unit uh, into MARSOC and the global war on terrorism. Let me ask you a little bit about Afghanistan. Obviously, there was a day there you'll never forget. And, uh, God, we just are so incredibly proud of you, you know, for the sacrifices you've made for us. But, uh, tell me about the, about the mission set a little bit about where you guys were, like what province were you Helmand? Yeah, it was, uh, it was really challenging and chaotic environment. Uh, a lot of uncertainty, a dynamic situation, but, um, it was what we signed up to do. You don't sign up to do easy stuff, right? You sign up to do hard things in support of the nation and in support of, you know, causes you believe in. So what I wanted and what I got from the special operations community was the opportunity to, to lead and work alongside the most motivated, the most proficient, the highest trained Marines in the Marine Corps. And that was incredibly fulfilling for me. What we did, we were tasked, as I mentioned, with conducting the, the tactical term or the, the term that was utilized was village stability operations. Uh, but essentially it was, you know, the, the simple version is we put a team in a small outpost in a region that's um, at risk of enemy influence or Taliban influence and then stay there 
as long as it takes to try to help uh, establish security, rebuild the economy there, and eventually try to link the political governance to create some semblance of of order and with the ultimate goal that, you know, that one day we would be able to leave and they would be able to sustain themselves uh, and resist any influence from some of these bad actors, uh, which in this case was, you know, the Taliban. Um, and so we deployed to Helmand province. Uh, the place we went was pretty, pretty rural, pretty desolate, no running water, no electricity, just farmland, right. Out there with goats and, uh, and growing different things throughout the, the green zone, which is, you know, in between the Helmand river and uh, the Nari Siraj canal. And so um, that was the most fertile area for farms. And it actually dates back to a USAID project where they built this canal so that they could create this uh, lattice structure of canals that would crisscross this area and, and turn an arid or semi-arid climate into a, an area where there was farming and sustainable farming. And so it was very valuable for the farmers. Uh, and unfortunately, after we've invaded the country you know, in early 2000s, the farming and the landscape shifted to, you know, the, unfortunately, uh, all the farmers were growing poppy, right? And it became a very highly contested area. It was very valuable for the enemy, uh, the Taliban, and it was very valuable for, for us because they were there, right? We were trying to help prevent this cycle of, you know, commerce. And so if you can imagine, we're pretty isolated. Uh, and so there were some other outposts out there as well, like Army Green Braves and SEAL teams that were, SEAL platoons that were also having... Uh, those stability sites maybe a few kilometers away. Uh, but the nearest large military base was 50 kilometers away. It was a significant distance to cover. And so, as you can imagine, there's a lot of room. And if you're not there, the you know forces aren't occupying it. The way I kind of explain the situation that we came into was almost similar to what I would say trench warfare in World War One, where we're in the middle of the green zone. We have this small team. And just a few miles or a few kilometers away across the river, there's Taliban, right? Full, fully controlled Taliban area. You know, they have security, they have governance, they're running a small city, you know, so, uh, bad guys on one side, good guys on the other, right? And what that led to was a lot of engagements, uh, you know, with them trying to send fighters to ambush us. And, and after that happened enough, we decided to be proactive and try to ambush them, right? To, to try to, try to establish some security and buffer in the region. All the while working with our partners, the Afghan local police, which was um, basically a small militia that we hired, trained and equipped of what were supposed to be local Afghans, but, you know, sometimes weren't. And so that was the strategy that was we were doing. Uh, we started to have a lot of success. Um, but on one day, uh, June 14th, 2012, we led a small patrol out through this, you know, the Hellman River Valley to uh, one of the compounds that was of interest for us. We got set up there um, before sunrise. So we'd always move out on the cover of darkness uh, to enable us some some level of surprise and uncertainty. And then in the opening moments of the day, uh, found ourselves in a firefight, engaging with the enemy. I actually switched after the initial volley, switched with my assistant patrol leader, Brian Jack, when he was on the rooftop of this building. I switched out with him because once you get inside of these buildings, they have you know massive, thick mud walls, but they can stop bullets and they provide cover. But you also can't see what's going on. And so we'd have to post people on the roof to be able to see what's happening, right? Even though it was somewhat dangerous, you know, if you're exposed, uh, you can be injured. But if you aren't, you know, you can't see what's happening. So you kind of walk this delicate balance there. But I'd swapped out with him. And then just a few minutes later, found ourselves, we'd been flanked by an enemy fighter. The initial volley that, that he provided, first bullet that he fired went through the neck of the sergeant who was to my left. And then the second one or, or one of the 
ones after that actually went into my left shoulder and, and lodged my spine. And so I was instantly paralyzed from the chest down. So I immediately tried to made the radio call to my teammates, try to pick myself up, triage myself, take care of myself and uh, realized nothing below my chest was working. And so all I could do really was just pass information through the radio. You know, I told them about what had happened to myself and, and Rick, the, the sergeant to my left, he was still laying there unconscious. But my team sprang into action and they were able to not just repel an enemy assault from multiple directions, but save the lives of Rick and also myself uh, and get us out of there, which was no small feat. And so we're only alive today due to the heroism and the bravery and the selflessness of the men in the team because, you know, we had this small unit, so it was 10 Americans. It was a half of our team we took on this patrol uh, and 10 of our Afghan forces. And so you can do the math. Now two of us are critically wounded. Two of the people have to stop fighting to help keep us alive. So there's only six people now trying to, you know, fend off with our Afghan partners, fend off this assault, call in air support, call in the medevac helicopter, keep us alive and you know, get us on the, the, the bird. And basically to do that, they had to carry us out into this open field under the threat of enemy fire where they couldn't engage the enemy. Right. And so Brian Jacklin, the assistant patrol leader, blew a hole in the wall and made a breach to, to get us out to the field. You know, he said to him, he said, does anybody have a problem risking it to, to get these guys out of here? And yeah, it was silence. And he said, okay, on my command, you know, we're going to run out here and, and take these guys out. If you get hit on the way to the chopper, you need to jump in because it was so bad that the helicopters would not be able to come back in. And so that's what these, you know, my teammates all knew into a man, they all ran out there and, carried us to the helicopters and, and saved our lives. And that started this journey of rehabilitation and moving back to the U.S. and, and moving forward. Mm, outstanding, Derek. And thank you for taking us along on that touching story that is hard to tell, even to this day, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, I'll say that every time I hear one of the combat scenarios, every time I hear one of these combat memories, it's like there's no greater love than the love that a man will show and lay down his life for his brother. And it's, you know, exhibited in every single one of these tales to their core. You guys are a unit. You guys are brothers. You guys fight for each other. And um all politics aside, it, it does not go without notice that you guys were fighting for a really just and good cause, uh fighting to help people around the world. Heck of a job, man. Thank you, sir. Um, Obviously, recovery's next, right? We're going to get stitched up. We're going to get tightened up. We're going to get worked on. We're going to get, uh, you know, everybody's going to look at you and see how to, you know, get you back. And, uh, you know, they're doing God's work on you now, uh, making you whole. Along with that comes some introduction to this medical technology that we're getting ready to talk about or share with me a little bit about from recovery to discovering, you know, this thing that we'll talk about called the habit camera. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. So I spent some time in Germany. Briefly before coming back to Bethesda, Maryland, to the, the Naval Hospital there, uh, and then actually transferred to a VA facility. So I went to the Tampa VA facility because, and many people may not know this, but the way the military medicines, you know, military medical community is structured is military doctors and medics and everybody are focused on trying to return you to duty. If there's severe catastrophic incidences, oftentimes spinal cord injury, which is most likely permanent, the expertise resides within the VA. And so the VA has spinal cord injury clinics. There's not actually a active duty spinal cord injury clinic. Transferred to the VA hospital in Tampa and they did great work to help me recover as much function as I could and 
figure out how to adapt and, and move forward in life. And so I'd spent my entire career as a infantry and special operations officer. I didn't know a lot about spinal cord injury or, you know, the medical research or anything else, but just like any other person in that scenario or try to become an expert overnight, pouring through research, pouring through literature, talking to everybody, figuring things out, learned about a lot of different technologies. And the first exposure I had to, to really impactful technology that changed my life was a robotic exoskeleton. And so at that time it was still experimental, but they had basically, if you could imagine a robotic system that I could strap into and would allow me to stand and walk despite being completely paralyzed. And so I started working with that company. Uh, fortunately, I was the first person to to obtain a system once they were FDA approved here in the US. I was able to use that device throughout my entire retirement ceremony. So I didn't use a wheelchair the entire time out, you know, as I was out there leaving the military two years later. And that was a great experience. But what that did for me is it actually ignited this this passion uh, that I had and it made it tangible and relatable for me to pursue a career, a profession, a new profession as an entrepreneur in the medical device industry where you can solve problems with new technologies and innovations. And if you do it, it helps thousands or millions of people. And so that's what, what sparked me on this journey after I'd met the founder, because the founder of that company, the, the inventor of that system was a guy who was also just in a wheelchair, right? And I met him and I'm like, oh, that guy's not that much different than me. You know, 15 years ago, he had this idea and he's like, just started tinkering away in his garage. And now he's got this device on the market helping people like me. I can do that. And so it started this journey of trying to leverage the experience I had firsthand as a patient to solve those problems with new technologies and build businesses as an entrepreneur to, to create sustainability around those. And that's what I've been doing since that time in 2015 after I went back to finish graduate school and then came across this technology from the VA a few years later uh, and decided to pursue it. Very cool. I have a dear, sweet friend of mine, and I'll give her a shout out right here, Fabiola Munoz, Miami, Florida, if you're listening. Uh, she was wounded while we served together and uh, subsequently paralyzed and got to know her family, became honorary Cubano, uh, you know, by meeting the family and going down there on the visits. But I'll say this about the veteran community. It's amazing when we get into some tough stuff, how we are able to turn. And as you'd said, it lit your fire, became an inspiration to see what kind of medical device technologies are out there and to really build a business out of it, you know, to like go in there and say, hey, not only can I make a difference, but if I continue to examine this technology and use it, maybe I can take it to market, make a difference in the lives of others, countless others. So tip of the cap to you there. Uh, when you first came across this habit cam now, which is, of course, what a paratroop is all about. Was it something that you used? And can you define it a little bit for me about how it works yeah. or like what it is? Is it an app? Is it a device? Absolutely. It's an extremely simple idea, but it's incredibly valuable. And sometimes the, the best products and the most impactful ones are the simplest and like the obvious ones. So I was in Minneapolis and I saw so many different things. Uh, so many different innovations that this, this cell had been working on. And I found, uh, it's the simplest way to inspect your skin in hard to see areas. And the idea was you take a small digital camera and you put it at the end of this flexible stick and it allows you to see your buttocks, your backside, your back, any, anywhere that's hard to see and hard to inspect. It's really valuable, not just for people with spinal cord injury, uh, where we're inspecting you know, typically the buttocks because you sit all day. So you're at risk of pressure ulcers and sores, which are potentially deadly conditions, right? So you're trained to inspect your skin, but they give you a mirror 
And so you can imagine you have this mirror and you're trying to do this awkward yoga pose and look at something. And then if you see something, you're like, now you have to call the, the nurse and say, or the doctor and you say, Hey, I saw something. And they're like, okay, well tell me what it looked like. And you tell them and they're like, it doesn't help me at all. Just come in. And then you just have to come in and they look at it and you're like, it's terrible. So what this does is it's a digital camera. And so you can easily and comfortably observe your skin on an iPhone or tablet app. We have app. And so you have it in high definition and high clarity in real time, right in front of your face, as opposed to trying to crane your neck and look around and do all this stuff. And then also when you see something, you can record videos or take pictures and then just text them, email them, send them via secure messaging to your provider. So you eliminate the ambiguity. And obviously a picture is worth a thousand words. You know, then the doctor can look at it and say, oh yeah, you need to get here today. This is serious. Or actually you don't need to come in. You know, you don't need to drive whatever two hours and take a day off of work to come sit in the clinic. It's concerning, but just keep looking at it or keep sending me pictures. Right. And so it basically creates this telehealth or remote care, this remote patient monitoring capability. And it's not just for people with spinal cord injury and diabetic foot ulcers. Uh, there's a lot of people with diabetes. They're at risk of foot ulcers due to poor circulation and also due to neuropathy. They don't, they don't feel their feet. And so the pressure can build up and hot spots can become, you know, bad. And so there's actually, I believe the statistic is there's over 70,000 lower extremity amputations every year. And that's from this issue from pressure sores and wound care. And so, you know, imagine you're getting a toe or your foot or your ankle, you know, you're, you're losing a limb because you just couldn't feel or you didn't inspect your skin. And then for skin cancer, uh, dermatology obviously is another big potential use case for the product. What we find in the literature is the lesions that are found on the, the backside of the body are usually two to three times as large and as serious as the ones on the front side of your body, which is kind of obvious because if I can just look at it, it's easy to see. I notice it. I see it all the time. But if you're not conducting these types of inspections and examinations, it's going to grow on your back or your buttocks or your legs or your feet or wherever you can't see. And it's, it's riskier, right? Because early intervention, we know the, the whole thing is designed for early intervention, right? To enable you to take control and share this information with the goal of improving outcomes by intervening earlier. And so after it came together and I started to realize just how brilliant the concept is, uh, I started to work with the VA to try to license it and build a company and, and make this a real product and take it from where it was, which was a, a relatively rudimentary prototype, a proof of concept to a, a well-designed consumer product. Right on. You were able to see this technology, see its future, and say, I can build a business on that, which is what I was really excited to talk with Dr. John Kaplan about when I first heard about this interview, is to know that, you know, if you want to be an entrepreneur, but you're not a scientist, VA is one of the top leading global research institutions, and they do medical research on a variety of things, and there are products right there right now that they need more people to know about, but the VA is also not in the business of being a for-profit medical technology company. So you help bridge that gap and take some of these products that they have to market a brilliant partnership. And Dr. John Kaplan, stand by. We're getting ready to dive into more of that. Um, I wanted to say about the technology itself with the Habit Camera, I have a family member that did have an amputation due to diabetes and, you know, it was tough. And I don't think you need to be in the spinal cord injury community to understand, like you'd said, with the brilliant example of your back and melanoma, 
good Lord, how many of us are on the beach? I mean, I can't even put the sunblock on my own back, much less see it after a long day at the beach. And for everyone, especially down in your neck of the woods, Tampa, Florida, the Gulf Coast, those beach places, this is an important tool. And it's really cool that it can be home-based and you can begin to give actual real-time snapshots of what you're experiencing because you're right. What's the biggest problem with medical? Oh, well, we'll get you on the schedule three weeks from next Tuesday, and we'll get you maybe a month from now. We can have that looked at. It just stretches out the timeline that we all get adequate care. This is instant. I'm going to take this image. I'm going to send it to you, Doc. What do you think? Great stuff, Derek, man. Really appreciate it. Uh, talk to me about rolling out the business. Once you were once you were able to work with the Department of Veteran Affairs Technology Transfer Program, first, how did you become aware of it? How did it look? I mean, did you just simply say, hey, I really like this tool. I think I could sell this on my own. Or did they say, hey, you know what? We have a licensing program. The way it came together, uh, I had a few years of experience in the industry as an entrepreneur from other companies I'd started. I learned the process and one of the first processes, you know, one of the first requirements before you start the company is understanding the intellectual property. And that's patents and trade secrets and know-how and all the things that people work to protect. And so obviously, before you go and start selling a product, you got to make sure no one else has a patent on the idea or those sorts of things. Or if they do, you have to work with them to ensure that, you know, you can license the technology from them. And so the VA, as with other research institutions, once you create an invention, you work to patent it so that you have protection on that invention. And then either you can commercialize it or you can license that technology uh, to someone else to take and commercialize. But it's one of the first steps before you ever get started, because obviously before I decided to invest any funds or anything to try to build the product, we had to have you know access to the, the patents. And so the VA has a process for that. There are people at universities, hospitals, and the VA where their whole job is just to help get this technology out uh, because frankly, the, the reality is, and this is kind of my, my call to action to people who are considering this is being an entrepreneur is really hard. There is thousands and thousands of researchers who all are doing amazing and incredible research, but there's not as many people who are entrepreneurs who are willing to take the, the challenge of taking that technology and bring it to market. And so research is great, but if it's not brought to market, it's not going to help anybody. And so there's a huge gap. And it's not just with the VA, it's with everybody. You go to Harvard, you go to Stanford, you go to UCLA, any of these institutions, there's thousands or hundreds of thousands of, of patents that will never see the light of day and never be a product where people can benefit from it. And there's a big gap. There's a lot, there's a need, there's an unmet need across the spectrum for people doing, you know, what I've been trying to do. And taking on like a real special operations team member too. Uh, you know, you dive in, you get to learn everything, every aspect, every nuance of whether it's the medical technology or whether it's the business plan, you dive all the way in and uh, get it done. All right. Now we've heard about Derek's journey in starting his business around the habit camera. Uh, let's turn it over to Dr. John Kaplan, director of Department of Veteran Affairs Technology Transfer Program. And uh, tell me more about this organization, this technology transfer program, what it is and what kinds of things are in the pipeline? What are other examples of things, technologies that we could license and help get to the marketplace where they desperately need to be? So uh, the technology transfer program handles all inventions that come out of the VA. 
most of the inventions, as uh, Derek has said, the one that came out of Minneapolis, come from the VA research community of research scientists and doctors working specifically on research. But we also get inventions from all other VA employees on a whole uh, range of uh, technologies. Uh, we have a technology right now uh, that deals with magnetic and uh, using magnetism to help people uh, rehab, help people walk. That's a, a neat technology that we're working on. Uh, we also have a technology uh, that's, that's helping cemeteries deal with caskets and different things about burials. Uh, we also have some pharmaceuticals dealing with, uh, you know, treating PTSD treating depression and things like that. So there's there's a very wide breadth of technologies that are available, hundreds and hundreds of them, thousands of them actually, that are out again on this TechLink um, site that are available for people to look at and see if um, they can be used to start a business or a current business that wants to expand. Um, so it's just a whole... Um, a whole host of technologies. That's great. And the research, the science behind it has already been done. It's been vetted. It's been tested. Like this is stuff that's ready to go to market. If I can ask, why doesn't the VA just do this? Why, why is there an entrepreneurial link that's necessary here? So if you look back years ago when the, the whole issue of technology transfer was pushed by the federal government, the whole point of tech transfer is to take government-sponsored research and spur economic development. So it's not only to, to help get products out there, but it's also to spur companies to have more jobs, to, have, to, to help the economic viability of the country. That's the whole point of tech transfer. And the people in Minnesota that Derek talked about, they're one of our sites. There's also a site in Pittsburgh and a site in Cleveland. They actually build prototypes for us and, and enhance designs. Sky's the limit with some of these ideas. And uh, the fact that you guys make it available to take to market is just brilliant. Tell me about where I get more information on how to do this and how to look at what's going on right now in the Veterans Affairs Technology Transfer Program. The best way to do it is to go to our website. Again, if you Google VA PTP, you'll get to our website. There's a slew of information about what we do, how we do it. And then there's also a link on our website to TechLink, which is our arm of our office that helps with our marketing. And there at the TechLink website is where we have all the technologies listed with the details of the technology and where to reach out for help so that we could, we could start down that road. We're also, you know, we, we want the entrepreneurs or the companies to be successful. So we're very cooperative. If the technology is very complicated, the scientists or engineers that develop the technology are there to help the company explain the technology to them. So our whole goal is to have the companies be successful and get the products out there for economic development, uh, help the VA, and most importantly, help our veterans with better medical devices. That's great. 
So we've dove in. We've learned everything we needed to do. We got the business plan. We found out how licensing works. We've got this habit camera technology now in our back pocket. We founded a business. Tell me about business, and then we'll end with, is business good? It's wild. It's been wild. So um, so this is not my, my day job or my full-time job. I started this project as a, a small family business uh, with my wife and I. So it's a weekend side hustle right now. And we thought that this was a impactful and meaningful project and decided to put a lot of our own money behind it to try to help bring it to reality. And so that's what we've been doing. So I've been the, the front facing guy and my wife's been the behind the scenes, you know, it's literally that simple where like our garage is full of these things and she's putting them together and shipping them out. And I'm out there like answering emails and talking to people. And, uh, it's been a lot of fun. We, we've had a lot of fun doing it together and working together and stuff. We've invested a majority of our time trying to work with the VA because my initial business plan, my hypothesis was that if the VA invented this and they understand the value of it, they should be a great customer for us. But as with anything, especially in the medical infrastructure, new products sometimes are, are hard to work their way through some of the bureaucracy, especially there's a lot of bureaucracy in the VA, but it's not just the VA, any health system, any insurance, any providers, it's, it's just a challenge. It just takes time. So what we're doing, we have sold into probably a dozen VAs with individual units. But what we're trying to do is instead of just going through the process for a doctor to prescribe one unit for one veteran, we're going to try to secure you know, a, a contract or some sort of engagement with the VA where they have the devices and there's policies and things in place that you know say any new spinal cord injury patient is, is issued this, right? That's what we're working to achieve. And it's it's in progress. It's going to take some time. But we're playing a long game. We're just trying to help people and get this to the, the people that need it. And in line with that too, the gap we're trying to fill is trying to make it accessible, is, is making it very low cost. And so right now the retail price is $149. A lot of times what people will do in the, the healthcare and medical device industry is they charge a ton for these products. Because they know it's so hard to get that you just have to invest so much time and effort and money that you got to make up money on the back end. And if we were to do that, that was one option we could pursue. But if I was charging 500 bucks for this, you know, it would be, be out of the reach of a lot of the people that need it. Right. Um, and so we are trying to make this as cheap as possible, whether you have insurance or whether the VA is buying for you or not. Right. It's, it's accessible. And that's been good because we have a lot of cash paying customers too, or people like, my grandfather just had a lower extremity amputation. I'm going to buy one for him. 150 bucks. If 150 bucks is going to, going to prevent him from losing another toe or an ankle or whatever, right? It's a pretty simple thing. And so, and so that's the positioning. That's what we've always wanted to do with the goal at the end of the day. Like, you know, this is not a get rich quick scheme for us. This is like, we just want people to have the technology and, and help them, right? Cause if, if I told you 150 bucks could save someone getting from something amputated or, it's really bad for people in wheelchairs because, you know, if I develop a pressure sore and they do us on my, you know, buttocks, which is very common for people because you sit all day, um, and they do a surgery to fix that. After that surgery, you know, I've had friends that are bedridden for six to nine months. And so, I mean, think about that, right? Like, what is your life like when you're, you know, 40 years old and you're now in a bed for nine months because of this issue. Right. So like if 150 bucks can save someone to do like nine months and in, in a bed, you know, in a bed in a nursing facility, like we've done our job and that, that's what we're trying to do. 
And that, my friends, right there is the promo. That's the promo that runs to promote this whole episode. Love that. I just love the optimism, and I love what you are doing with this and the reason you're doing it, and that the VA, VA's technology transfer program, has medical devices, medical technologies, other kinds of technologies out there available to be licensed and brought to market. Great stuff. And uh, I'll also list in the notes of this episode uh, some of the technologies that are out there because it's mind-blowing. Like there's stuff that is going on in Santa's workshop at the VA that you don't even know about. They all serve as prime opportunities to start a business around. I've been doing this for a while, and it may sound like the VA is hard to work with or hard to license with. It couldn't be further from my experience, what my truth, right? So licensing this technology, working with the team at the VA, they were incredibly professional, incredibly responsive, very different than what you would do if you went to like Harvard, right? Or MIT or Stanford, right? It's rough and it takes a long time. Um, and frankly, the VA, a lot of people don't know about it. It's less competitive, but they're also, they have a different incentive and different structure. And so if you're considering it, definitely, you know, learn more. And there's a ton of stuff out there. Like Right on. All right. So I guess all that's left to do are some plugs. I want to find out more about where I get the habit camera. I want to for- find out more about Paratroop LLC, Derek Herrera, Marsoc Raider, Marine Corps veteran. Tell me about uh, where I find out more about your habit camera. Find out more. You can go to our website. It's www.habitcamera.com. And so habit, like make skin inspection a habit. H-A-B-I-T. Uh, and you can go there. You can find me on LinkedIn. Um, and email us, info at habitcamera.com, and, and learn more. Make skin inspection your habit, habitcamera.com. Uh, that's great, man. And uh, not only for the medical community and those in the spinal cord community or those that have, you know, amputations, but, you know, I'm talking to you every beachgoer, uh, every person at uh, the villages in Orlando, every sun worshiper and uh, beach lover out there. Sounds like something that, uh, you know, you're going to want to have at least for just a semi-annual inspection. Just give yourself a good check. Make skin inspection your habit, habitcamera.com. Derek, thanks for your time, brother. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Dr. John yeah. Kaplan, appreciate your time and uh, always good having you on Iron Vets, man. Come back again and talk to me about what's going on in the workshops and more of this incredible medical technology ready to take to market. Okay, great. Thanks so much for the opportunity. And that's a wrap for this week's episode. I'm Navy veteran Phil Briggs, and I encourage you to stay here in the stack. Check out a couple more episodes of inspiring stories and incredible U.S. military vets. Now, if you're a veteran or no one with a story that we need to tell, feel free to email me, phil, at connectingvets.com. We'll be back again next week with more inspiring stories from our great military vets when CBS Eye on Veterans returns. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Eye on Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today, or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader, like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro... Cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader.
New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts.